to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Do you ever wish that you had more friends? Do you avoid telling your friends your problems or telling them what's really going on in your life? Do you let friends fall fairly low on your priority list sometimes? If you answered yes to any of those questions, today's episode is for you. We're talking about friends. I have to say when it comes to friends, I have an unusual experience. I met most of my closest friends in kindergarten and we're still friends to this day. We've been there for each other for college graduations, weddings, kids, sicknesses, family members' funerals, and everything in between. But I know most people don't have lifelong friendships, and there's a good chance that most people probably shouldn't stay friends forever. Just because you liked someone when you were four doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to like them when you're 40. But I know the importance of friendship in my own life, as well as in the lives of the people who come into my therapy office. So today I'm talking about friendship with Eric Barker. He's a best-selling author who does a great job taking complicated research studies and explaining them in a way that applies to real-life situations. His first book was called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, the surprising science behind why everything you know about success is mostly wrong. His new book is called Plays Well with Others, the surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong. I loved his first book, so I was excited that he decided to write about relationships. Some of the things he talks about on today's episode are why friends are so important for your health, how to make friends, and how to develop and maintain deeper relationships. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. It's the part of the episode where I'll give you my take on some of Eric's strategies for building mental strength and explain how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Eric Barker on how friends can help you grow mentally stronger. Eric Barker, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. It's great to be here. So I was a big fan of your first book, Barking Up the Wrong Tree, where you tell us how mostly everything we know about success is wrong. (laughs) And so I was thrilled that you came out with your newest book, Plays Well with Others, where you talk about how most of the things we know about relationships are wrong. And I'd love to know, how did you come up with this idea to do one specifically about relationships? Uh, uh, Probably because I was so bad at them. (laughs) So, I mean, that was where the germ of it came from. Also, I I think I was influenced by that genre tends to be often a little less than scientific, you know, kind of like a magic eight ball level of accuracy. And I, I was like, there's some myths to be busted here. I, I, I don't think, I think, I think we're often getting told what we want to hear. And then what was crazy was literally two weeks after I'd closed the deal for the book, uh, California, where I live, locked down for the pandemic. So it was like, I was already decided this is the book I'm writing. This is, but all of a sudden it took on this new urgency where I said to myself, oh man, like I'm not the only person who's going to need this book. You know, like this is this is going to be a big deal in the, in the coming years. Absolutely. And I think, of course, now the pandemic's 
coming to some sort of resolution and people are getting out there. I'm hearing from so many people who are saying, okay, but now I don't really have anything to talk about. I sat in my house for two years and (laughs) I've missed out on things. We've grown, things have changed. Uh, How do I get back out there? So the chapter I would love to dive into is the one where you talk about friendship and it's called a friend in need, a friend indeed. And you kind of tackle that whole slogan and, and where to go with that. But one of the things that really caught my attention in the very beginning is how do how do we define a friend? There's no definition of who's your friend and who isn't. Can you explain a little bit more about that one? Yeah, I mean, I think if you ask people, they would have an answer. But if you start to probe it, like we don't have an answer because we is a Facebook friend a friend? You know, uh, how about that person that you really, really love, but you only talk to them every two years? That person you see every day and you get along with, but frankly, you would never trust them to watch your kids. Like we we have a very fluid definition of it. And what was interesting when I started doing the research was, you know, friendship just doesn't get the attention the other relationships do. And this this is basically something I saw everywhere was that the amount of research done on it, you know, there's tons of research on parenting. There's tons of research on love and marriage. Friendship didn't get that much attention, but it's not just academics. I, I You know, friendship across the board, like really doesn't get the attention. That's why we we lose our friends, you know, to a degree as we get older is friendship requires us to be proactive because friendship doesn't have an institution behind it. You know, if you, if you, you can stop liking your spouse and you're still married, you can stop liking your boss. You still work there. You can stop liking your kids. They're still your blood. But if you stop liking your friends, you don't have to see them anymore. The the institution of friendship is so fragile, but the funniest thing is ironically, because it's so fragile That's why it's the relationship that makes us happier than any other. The research consistently shows friends make us happier than any other relationship because it's voluntary. Because if we don't like somebody, we don't have to do it. So it's fragile, but that keeps it pure. It's really interesting, isn't it? And we don't really seem to talk that much about friends as compared to the other relationships in our lives. And it is a loose definition. Or maybe you have a friend that you would eat dinner with, but you wouldn't call them when you have a problem. Exactly. So did you come up with a way to define like who is a friend or how many f- real friends we should have? I mean, it was it was tricky. But the, the thing that I, because I looked at the research, there wasn't that much research, you know, and I went back, I started looking at other sources. I even started reading philosophy to try and see if they had a good answer. And the best answer I came up with was 2000 years ago. Aristotle defined a friend as another self, which, you know, is very heartwarming. But I was like, okay, this might be good for an Instagram quote, but like, it's not really scientific. And then sure enough, I looked through the research and honestly, that has been validated. Basically, our brains, the closer we are to someone, close is a great word the more the Venn diagram between how we see ourselves and that other person overlaps. If you put if you put women in an MRI scanner and you say their friend's name, the areas of their, of their brain for self-processing actually light up. If I ask you to, to, if I say, do you have this personality trait or does your friend have this personality trait? It will take you longer to answer than if I asked you about a stranger's or, or an acquaintance's personality trait, because we so overlap 
the, our friends with who we are. And the closer a friendship is, if that friendship breaks down, research shows you're more likely to say, I don't know who I am anymore, or I feel like I'm missing a part of myself. So I would honestly say, crazy enough, going back to ancient philosophy, the best, the best definition of a true friend is another self. That's interesting, isn't it, to think about that? Because I think in today's world, we're like, oh, I hang out with this person, but we don't really think about what does that mean to be a friend or yeah. how do you define who's your friend and who isn't? And then when it comes to friendship, how important are friends to our overall well-being and happiness in life? I mean, like I said, you know, in terms of relationships and happiness, like friends take take the title every time. This is This is work by Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman. He found that Friends make us happier. And even within a marriage, the most happiness creating part of a marriage is the friendship. And this extends to not only happiness, but also health is you look at women who are who are struggling with breast cancer, the effect of a spouse on whether they recover zero. But how many friends they have actually is predictive. Men recovering from a heart attack, spouse has no effect how many friends they have, you know, predicts whether or not they'll, they'll get better. And in fact, uh, Robin Dunbar, who is big researcher in network theory, relationships, friendships, uh, he looked at all the research in terms of health and he summed it up uh, pretty succinctly. He said, basically what determines whether or not you'll be alive one year after a heart attack? He said, basically it comes down to whether you smoke and how many friends you have. Yes, nutrition, exercise, all that other stuff matters, but the difference between smoking and friendship and everything else is enormous, is that those, those two things were much, much bigger predictors. So for health, for happiness, you know, basically the, the increase, one economic study showed that spending more time with your friends is the happiness equivalent of an extra $93,000 a year. So, so go to your boss and ask for a $93,000 raise and, and see how well that goes over. Uh, and then consider maybe I should just spend more time with my friends. Right. Yeah, exactly. Why do you think it is that friends make such a big impact on our health and well-being? I mean, across the board, it's, it's, it really is that fragility aspect where we are not obligated to spend time with them. We are not obligated. We do these things because we love them and because they love us. And that, that sincerity, you know, it's like, it's pretty much like a guarantee. Otherwise they wouldn't be our friends. And so for health, for happiness, you know, not, nothing beats friendship, but oddly enough, you know, like we really neglect our friends. Like friends don't get a holiday. Friends don't get an anniversary. And we, we really should do a lot more to try and keep those up if, if we want to be happy because we do so much to try and be happier and to get happier, but we, we put the wrong lens on it. We, we think, what do I need to get? What do I need to do? And we need to broaden that and really think about from a more networked perspective socially, like what do I need to be a part of? What do I need to do for other people? You know, where do I, how do I spend more time with others? Like to, rather than taking this very singular aspect to how do I increase my happiness, to see it from a more communal vision of how can I be a part of a group of other people who care about me and what do I need to do within that group? 
This is research actually by Brett Ford at UC Berkeley, where taking a social perspective on how can I be happier is a far, far more effective way than taking a more individualistic perspective. And one of the things you talk about is the importance of not looking at a friendship as transactional, that we shouldn't keep score. It's not about I do you a favor, you do me a favor, and we make sure it's even in the end. It's basically like going all the way back to Aristotle. Aristotle was no fan of transactional relationships. And what's funny is the most popular book that we all know uh, on friendship is, you know, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And if you read the book closely, you know, it is a more transactional perspective. It's much more concerned with the early parts of a friendship, with influence is in the title. It, it's much more a guidebook for, you know, business contacts and, you know, kind of like tools of an entrepreneur. Now, that said, the majority of what Dale Carnegie said for at least the early parts of a friendship are very effective. The only thing he got wrong was he said that, you know, we should try to see things from the other person's perspective. And most of the research says, honestly, we're not very good at that. You know, and we try to do it often, often where you actually get worse. So, but most of the things he said early on in a relationship, like it's pretty effective. But if we want deeper friends, Dale Carnegie's not gonna, gonna get there to get those sincere friendships. For that, we need costlier signals, things that aren't as easy to do so that we know they're real. And looking at the research, it comes down to time and vulnerability are really the two things, the two costly signals that tell us that someone is a real friend and that, that we're being a real friend. Yeah, you talked pretty openly in the book about how when we meet somebody, our first instinct sometimes is to try to impress them or tell them about how awesome we are. But that actually doesn't work, right? No, I mean, it can be helpful in like leadership scenarios, maybe in sales, maybe in those kind of things where where status, you know, can can really help. But in friendship, it actually distances us from people. You're you're putting yourself on a higher plane. And that's not conducive to feeling close to people. It's kind of the opposite, if you think about it, of vulnerability, of being open, showing your weaknesses. You know, this is trying to show that you're better, you're superior. So what we need to do is the opposite of displaying high status. You know, vulnerability, that's when we're a little more open with problems we're having, fears we have. And when we, when we show that to someone else, when we tell someone that could potentially be used against us, it's a demonstration of trust. And when we show that we're trusting someone else with something that could potentially hurt us, you know, that's legit. That's a real signal. And those people are more likely in general to trust us. You're basically saying that I consider you safe. I consider this a safe place. I'm comfortable saying things that could hurt me. And that's the best way to demonstrate to somebody else that that they can do it too. This is what deepens friendships. Most of the research on friendship shows it takes like dozens or hundreds of hours of contact to produce a deeper relationship. But Arthur Aaron, who teaches at Stony Brook University, he managed to make people feel like lifelong friends in 45 minutes. And he did this by having them really open up, really ask deeper questions, answer deeper questions. You know, it's, it's that difference and the effects of it are profound. And right, if we treat a, a friend different than we would somebody in a networking event, right? If you go to a networking event and you're just talking about your business or what it is you do, but friendship should be different, right? We should be talking about the struggles, the real life problems that we have, fears that we might have. Absolutely. I mean, our, our studies show that in 
longer, longer term, more deep friendships. If there's too much small talk, it actually hurts the relationship, you know, and we've all had those experiences making new friends where the small talk starts to go in circles. You can't really break through to the next level. And that's usually because we're not being vulnerable. The other person's not being vulnerable. We're only skimming the surface. And this not only prevents deeper relationships, it can also harm us. I mean, th- there's research from the University of Pennsylvania that shows not being vulnerable prolongs minor illnesses. It increases the chance of a first heart attack and it increases the chance that a heart attack will be lethal. So we really need to open up, you know, to improve our relationships, but also our immediate health. So, and does it matter the quantity of friends versus the quality of the friendships that you have? I mean, both are valuable. The research consistently shows the quality is more important, but quantity matters as well. You know, I mean, people who had, I think, six good friends at work were like 96% more likely to be happy with their life. And that's not happy with your job. It's happy with your life. And it's really important that we have that. Another, another thing I would add along those lines is that friendship's great. Communities are even better. So if you have five friends, five close friends, but they don't know each other versus someone who has five friends and all the five friends all know each other, the latter person is going to be happier, according to the, to the science, because it just makes a difference if you're if you just have five individuals you can talk to versus a community where they're interacting, where those people can talk to one another and say, hey, you know, Eric seems like he's having some problems. Is, is there something we can do to work together to, to, to support him more? Those community effects are so powerful. So five friends is really helpful. But the difference between five friends that know each other and can act together versus five friends who are separate makes a huge difference. Interesting. And as adults, how do we make friends? I'm a therapist and I have so many people come into my office and say like, you know, what do you do? Walk up to somebody and say, hi, my name is and start talking. It was easy when you were in the third grade, but it's a lot harder as an adult. How do you suggest people get out there and make friends as an adult? I mean, that's that's where, frankly, Dale Carnegie's stuff really does shine. You know, it's like the opportunity if, you know, first of all, it, it helps to leave the house. It really helps. So like just going out and being there, usually we meet friends through other friends. One of the most interesting pieces of research, I talked about this in Barking Up the Wrong Tree in regards to networking, was that if you look down your list of contacts, you know, in your iPhone or whatever else, you'll see that the majority of people you know were probably introduced to you by a handful of people, that there's probably these like super nodes in the network where I met the majority of my friends through these four people. If you can identify those people, you're probably, it's probably going to be a lot easier for you to find people who might be, you know, potential good friends. You can, you can kind of use that as a leverage point. Beyond that, like I said, Dale Carnegie's stuff of, you know, finding similarity. Similarity is huge. It's repeated constantly again and again throughout the research. You know, we like people who are similar to us. Now, some people might think, oh, well, what if I'm different? What if I'm... there are many different angles to take on that? You know, you might be from the same hometown. You might work in the same profession. You know, you might have the same interest. There are many ways to find similarity. We just have to kind of, you know, dig that out. You know, and beyond that, 
it's like, like I said, the two big steps to deepening it after that are time and vulnerability. But there's a, there's many little tips and tricks we can use to try and make new friends as an adult. How about let's talk about time? Because it does seem like friends often fall down on the priority list. Yes. Family obligations, work, all these other commitments in life. How much time should we spend? And how do you make time so that you are spending time with with friends? I mean, you know, some of that's individual, but you know, the biggest, one of the biggest problems we're having in the modern era is that we are actually engaging in more parasocial relationships. This is research that first started in the 20th century around television, where, you know, people were using TV almost to replace their regular friends. Because it's nice, you can get some of the benefits of feeling you're around others and you can turn it off whenever you want. You know, people on TV don't, don't ask to borrow money. You know, so it, it was something we saw there. And Robert Putnam at Harvard did a lot of research, a book called Bowling Alone, where he found that part of the decline of community at the end of the 20th century was due to television and these parasocial relationships. You know, you heard a lot more, you know, in the middle of the 20th century about, you know, bowling, bowling leagues and, you know, local clubs and these kind of things that feel almost antiquated. Well, the 21st century... TV isn't as big as it was, but now we have social media. And the thing there is, I don't want to be one of those people that's just going to bash on social media and say it's and say it's evil. The key thing here, though, is that you're probably not going to sleep fewer hours. You're probably not going to work fewer hours. But a lot of social media ends up coming out of the buddy budget. Is that the more time we're on Instagram talking to people, the less time we're usually doing it face to face. That's what we have to be concerned about is are we allocating too much time to social media that we would be allocating to seeing people face to face, talking to them on the phone, you know, something that's kind of like a, a you know, a, a connection with a higher thread count. And I think that's the the thing that most people are probably seeing now is that their their friendships are existing more online than offline. And that can be good in a supportive function, but we've got to be careful that too much of the buddy budget doesn't get replaced, you know, from face to face to social media. Yeah, I think it's a slippery slope that people assume if we're setting time on social media, I'm socializing. But then if you don't get out there and see people face to face, it's counterproductive. Yeah. So you talk a little bit in the book, too, about loneliness. Can you talk about some of the dangers of loneliness for people that maybe think, oh, I don't really need friends or I don't have to get out there and meet people? Uh, the dangers of loneliness are basically all of them. <laughs> like, I mean, loneliness is correlated with like every negative health indicator you can imagine. Um, but what was really, really fascinating to me was looking at the research. John Cacioppo, who was the leading researcher regarding loneliness, found that lonely people don't spend any less time with other people than non-lonely people do, which sounds crazy. That sounds insane. But yet, we've all felt lonely in a crowd. You know, you've had that feeling. Just because you're around other people doesn't necessarily mean you feel connected to them. And this is something we need to think about is that definition of loneliness. Because there's loneliness, but there's also solitude. And solitude is a positive thing. And solitude actually protects against loneliness. Solitude, some solitude, actually increases all these health things. And I'm not just randomly making it up. That's a quote from Vivek Murthy, who's the Surgeon General of the United States. So we kind of need to disentangle, you know, if I feel lonely versus solitude, and if, you know, non-lonely people spend just as much time as lonely people do with people, what's going on? 
And that's because loneliness is a subjective experience. Loneliness is a feeling. It's not merely, you know, not spending time with others. Obviously, you want to spend time with people. But loneliness, in the end, is how you feel about your relationships. And if you feel like you're a part of something, part of a family, part of a team, part of a religion, part of a nation, part of a tribe, a group, a community, you know, then you can be away from people and you still feel connected. But if you feel like you're not connected, like people aren't thinking of you, caring about you, then you can be surrounded by people and still feel lonely. So we need to change kind of that idea. It's great advice to tell people who are feeling lonely to spend more time with others. But in the end, we need to think about that feeling. We need to feel connected to other people rather than just merely being proximate to them. Yeah, I can't tell you how many people come into my therapy office and will and will say just that. Like, nobody understands me. Yeah. I don't feel like I'm connected to people. They feel really alone in their feelings and because they don't, they struggle with vulnerability maybe. So it's hard to talk about those things. So even though they may be surrounded by people, they'll yeah. just say, nobody understands. What they don't know is I have, a revolving door of a lot of people that will say the exact same things over and over again, but they don't know the person who just was in my office 10 minutes before them said something very similar because we don't talk a lot about these things. No. And that, that, again, shows the importance of vulnerability in your friendships, where if you're not willing to open up, how can other people get to know you? If you don't say anything scary and you just give the surface, then people can't really understand what's going on or what you're dealing with. If people don't know about your struggles, they can't help, you know, and by the same token, if we're living a very, very individualistic life and we're not a part of something, people aren't dependent upon us, we're not dependent upon others, then you're not going to feel needed. You're not going to feel like you're contributing value. And those are the things we need to do to, to feel that connection, because that's something that's really deeply wired within us. I think probably the best example to help people understand is parenthood, where, you know, most kids, at least in the United States, you know, they've got plenty of food, you know, they have, they have lots of plenty. But does, as a parent, does that make you, oh, well, then I don't have to worry about that. My kid gets plenty of attention. My kid, no, we still have the desire to provide support, even if they don't need support. We, we want to give our kids food, even if they're fine. We want to show them attention, even if they get plenty of it. We have that need to contribute, you know, and that's not just true for parenting. It's true for all our relationships that we do need to feel needed and we do need to feel dependent upon. And those are the bonds that, you know, we've in the past 200 years, we've moved towards a very individualistic world. And in many ways, that's been a positive, undoubtedly. But we did kind of lose something in the deal. And we, we need to make an effort to be more apart, to be needed and to need others. And that's what addresses a lot of these lonely feelings. How do we find that? Because I encounter plenty of people who maybe they're retired and they don't have a job anymore or people who will say, you know, I just, I just feel like I, my kids moved out and nobody needs me anymore. How do we find a way that we can get out there and contribute? No, I mean, the... The issue here is that we have to be proactive and we're not we're not used to that because, I mean, historically speaking, you know, survival was an issue. There wasn't an option to not need and be needed. The world wasn't as individualistic. You know, you, you had to be a part of something. You know, now we're all a little more self-sufficient than we were hundreds of years ago. But by the same token, you know, 
we like the way life unfolds when you're young, your parents are there. Maybe your siblings are there. You know, when you're in school, there's people all around you and you make friends and, you know, college, you, you make friends. And then once we leave those environments, you know, it's the, the default has shifted. Instead of suddenly being surrounded by people and being part of a family unit, part of a class in school, part of a group of friends, suddenly the default is now, if you want it, you got to go get it. And so first and foremost, we have to keep in mind that, you know, it's like, yeah, you're going to have to do it. It's not just going to fall on you like it did in the past. But beyond that, the first thing I would say is, you know, look around at the friendships you already have. Attempt to deepen those. You know, don't try and be as individualistic. Offer help. Ask for help. You know, be involved in something along those lines. Past that, we all have tons of dormant friendships. We have friends who we like, we care about, but they've kind of fallen by the wayside, especially, you know, after the pandemic. You know, re reunite, re re revitalize those relationships. And then past that, involve get involved in your community. You know, it's like volunteer, you know, become part of your local community group, your religion, whatever it is where there's a community of people. And to again, put put that individualism a little bit on the back burner, you know, commit to something, be needed, need others. You know, it's right now, I think we, we unconsciously part of our culture has been be as individualistic as possible. Don't, don't need anyone. And again, if you were operating a corporation, that might be very smart advice, but we need to be needed. And in the modern world, this is, this is actually some writing by Sebastian Younger is that, you know, we need to be needed. And basically the modern world is often telling us that, you know, people, people aren't needed, that you shouldn't need other people. And I think that's something fundamental and something we need to be, be more proactive about. I agree. And in, in your book, you do a really good job of explaining the difference between making friends and then maintaining those friendships. Because we talk so much about how do you make a friend, but then how do you keep a friend? So my last question for you is, what do you do in your life to maintain friendships? If, uh, there's the two big ones, time and vulnerability. And first and foremost, you know, it's just making the time. And the best way to do that is to have rituals, is to have something you regularly, we both go cycling, we lift weights together. You know, we have coffee every Thursday. We talk on the phone every two weeks, you know, have something that's built in because if you're constantly having to schedule something, it's like, that's, that's going to fall by the wayside. If you have a habit, a ritual, then it, People can kind of block that out, you know, something preferably that that builds into your life in a way that you in a way that is already organic, something that's already a part of your life. If you can involve your friends with that, that's much more likely to be sustained. You know, that's what works for me. And beyond that, with vulnerability in the book, I talk about the scary rule, which is if it scares you, say it. It can it can be incremental. You know, you don't you don't need to confess to any murders immediately. You know, it's just like open up a little bit, say something that's a little bit outside your comfort zone, see how it's received. If your friend understands and reciprocates, you know, that's the way to, to deepen a friendship. When, like you're saying, a lot of your clients, they feel like people don't understand them. Open up, say those things that people don't know, say those things so that people can relate. They can check in on you. They can care. They can help you. And like I said, with good friends, they'll most likely do the same. And then again, we, we get that, that, like, that great combination where now your friends are you know, looking for ways to help you. You're looking for ways to help them. You need their help. 
you know, in terms of dealing with this thing you talked about, and they might need your help. And now we're cooperating on dealing with these things. We don't have to like keep all our problems to ourselves. I love it. Eric Barker, thank you so much for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. Oh, this is great. Thank you very much. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is a part of the show where I'll break down Eric's mental strength building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Eric's strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, focus on connecting with people, not impressing them. Eric talked about our tendency to want to share our accomplishments or say nice things about ourselves to other people. But he says if you really want to form a bond, focus on connecting with someone, not impressing them. But it's so easy to get caught up in worrying about whether someone is going to like you that you focus on trying to come across in a positive way rather than focus on getting to know someone. In fact, we even use the word impression in our language. Someone might say they want to make a good impression when they meet their partner's parents because it's ingrained in us that we need to paint a certain picture of ourselves. But just being honest and talking about some of your struggles might go a long way toward developing a friendship and maintaining the ones you already have. Number two, spend quality time with your friends. Eric talked about the things he does to maintain his friendships. Essentially, he finds activities for them to do together and he spends quality time with them. That sounds really easy on the surface. But as most of us know, time with friends can easily fall down on the priority list. It's always a good idea to check out your priority list every once in a while and see how it looks. Are there things you can shift to make time for a friend? In some cases, that might mean making time to grab a cup of coffee. In other cases, it might mean planning an afternoon to go do something fun together. And then don't feel guilty about doing something fun. As Eric said, it's really good for our mental health and our physical health to spend time with people that we enjoy. Eric also talked about the importance of having friends at work. We should probably factor the friendship issue into our job hunt based on the science that we know about having friends at work and how it can make you a much happier person. So if you're of the mindset that you're not here to make friends when you're at the office, you might want to rethink that. Making friends at work can make your entire life better. Just ask my producer who gets to work with me all day long. And number three, dare to be vulnerable. I liked how Eric talked about how loneliness isn't necessarily cured by being around people. We've all been there when you feel completely alone, even in a crowded room or maybe at a family gathering. Sometimes this is because the people that we're surrounded by don't actually know us or we think that we just can't relate to them. According to Eric, this might be because we're not being vulnerable. You can't really connect with people unless you're willing to talk about the real things going on in your life, not just small talk. Of course, that's tough to do when you're not used to it. If you've always had somewhat of a superficial relationship with someone, how do you suddenly start talking about deeper subjects? Well, one thing you can do is ask meaningful questions that go after what someone is thinking or what they're feeling, not just what they've been doing. So let's say someone shares their recent experience like they went on a trip. Rather than chime in and talk about your last trip, ask a question like, what was that like to go there on vacation? That one question might get them to open up a little bit more. Once a conversation really gets going, you might start to feel more comfortable talking about your own thoughts and feelings. So those are three things you can do to develop friendships that help you grow mentally stronger. Focus on connecting with people, not impressing them. Spend quality time with your friends and dare to be vulnerable. 
To hear more of Eric's strategies on improving relationships, pick up a copy of his new book, Plays Well with Others. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.